Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 36 of Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. I am one of your hosts. My name is Luke Johnson. I am a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist with the University of Utah. And joining me on the line is... This is Michelle Tarbox. I'm an associate professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. Every two weeks, a new episode of Dermosphere drops into your podcast app with some of the latest research in the world of dermatology. We didn't feel like we had enough time to read all the articles we wanted to read. We wished there was a podcast that could do some of the work for us. And so this is that podcast. Every two weeks, we review and discuss a few articles that we think are especially relevant to the practice of clinical dermatology, and we're going to kick things off with an article about everybody's favorite injection, botulinum toxin. I love Botox so much. I mean, is there anything that you could possibly love more? And it's so versatile. It can do anything. It slices, dices, and julienne fries, and now we're going to find out how it can potentially help with androgenetic alopecia. So we have an article out of the JAD. It's entitled, The Effect of Intradermal Botulinum Toxin on Androgenetic Alopecia and Its Possible Mechanism. And the authors are Yuri Sean and Byung-Chul Park out of South Korea. And I was hooked from the title on this because this is a very exciting topic for me. So they wanted to look into kind of a different way to treat androgenetic alopecia. And they begin with some background information about the fact that dihydrotestosterone induces transforming growth factor beta, TGF-beta-1, in dermal papilla cells, which suppresses follicular epithelial growth. So their logic then, therefore, is that if TGF-beta-1 is one of the key players in androgenetic alopecia, Something that antagonizes it may help prevent androgenetic alopecia or potentially treat it. So botulinum botulinum toxin type A may inhibit TGF-beta-1 secretion from the dermal papilla cells, as it does with scar tissue fibroblasts, which share the same mesenchymal origin. They noticed that recently Botox had been um, written up as an effective treatment for androgenetic alopecia. And I've actually read these articles independently of this study, um, kind of just looking at the potential therapeutic usage of that. In those studies, they were utilizing um, Botox more in the traditional way where we would utilize the Botox as an injection into a muscle to denervate it intentionally. And they found that people who had treatment of the scalp muscles and the muscles around the scalp, the temporalis, the frontalis, and the occipitalis with Botox had improvement in their androgenetic alopecia. So in this study, they wanted to evaluate the efficacy and safety of intradermal injection of Botox and its relationship with androgenetic alopecia relative to TGF-beta-1. So they enrolled patients with androgenetic alopecia based on basic and specific classification, and they excluded patients who were already under treatment with anything that could affect hair growth like finasteride or minoxidil. Uh, They had the patients then receive intradermal Botox injections every four weeks for 24 weeks, and they injected a total of 30 units of Botox into 20 different sites on the balding scalp in each treatment session. They also did some basic science to sort of demonstrate why this might potentially work. So they looked at the expression of TGF-beta-1 from cultured dermal papilla cells under 100 nanomolar dihydrotestosterone by RT-PCR analysis. And they found suppression of DHT-induced TGF-beta-1 secretion from those dermal papilla cells by Botox at a concentration of 2.5 units per 10 to the 6th 
cells. So there's a, a dilution that they utilized and they assessed this with immuno, immunofluorescence staining and they include figures of this in the um, article, which are quite nice and very striking in terms of the ability of Botox to inhibit the effect of the dihydrotestosterone, which is pretty cool. Um, so that actually was able to demonstrate by this in vitro study, um, their effect on TGF beta one secretion from the fibroblasts by Botox and the inhibition of the sort of triggering mechanism of dihydrotestosterone in those cells. So they took 18 male patients, mean age of 49, uh, with a standard deviation of six and a half years, and they had an unblinded phototrichogram image analysis. They quantified the number of hairs per centimeter squared at 0, 12, and 24 weeks, and they found them to be the same at 0 and 12 weeks, but there was an increase at 24 weeks. So per hairs per centimeter squared, they had about 129-ish with a similar um, standard deviation at 0 and 12 weeks, but at 24 weeks, they had 136 um, hairs per centimeter squared with a slightly broader standard deviation, but that was pretty impressive. So the number of hairs actually increased um, at week 24, but not at week 12. And they compared the pre and post treatment photographs with demonstration of significant improvement at week 24. I thought it was pretty cool that they looked at the cells in culture as well. So when they looked at DHT upregulation of the TGF beta one expression in dermal papilla cells at 96 hours, they found that when patients had Botox treatment, there was downregulation of the TGF beta one expression at 96 hours, and there were no serious adverse events or changes in laboratory parameters reported. So I think this is an interesting study to look at how dihydrotestosterone actually causes the miniaturization of scalp hair follicles. It's a process that we're familiar with, but we don't necessarily always have a firm grasp of how this actually happens. So DHT-induced synthesis of paracrine mediators that can include chemicals like IL-6 and TGF-beta-1 and balding dermal papilla cells may actually play a role in the androgenetic alopecia and may represent alternative treatment targets. They note that clinical studies targeting these paracrine mediators have not been reported, but here in this in vitro study, they were able to demonstrate that Botox successfully abrogated the DHT-induced secretion of TGF-beta-1 from dermal papilla cells, and were also able to demonstrate that intradermal injection of Botox was effective at improving androgenetic alopecia by inhibiting TGF-beta-1 secretion in the hair bulb, which is thought to suppress follicular keratinocyte growth and cause changes to the hair cycle. Um, so they go ahead and talk then a little briefly about the previous reported studies of intramuscular Botox injections that have been demonstrated to be therapeutic for androgenetic alopecia, but didn't really have elucidation of the underlying mechanism. In those papers, when I read them, some of the supposition was that it sort of relaxed the tense musculature that sometimes patients who have androgenetic alopecia have. And I certainly have appreciated this in some of my hair loss patients that for some of them, the balding scalp is also very tight, like a little timpani drum. And I do actually have my patients who I'm treating for androgenetic alopecia do five minutes of scalp massage at bedtime and with the goal to actually move the skin of the scalp, not just rubbing the hair. And I find that when patients improve the suppleness of their scalp over time, it can improve their hair growth. There have also been other independent studies that have looked just at scalp massage specifically and have found it to be beneficial for patients with multiple types of alopecia, including androgenetic and, and alopecia areata as well. So that was part of how they explained some of the improvement in the previous studies that was using intramuscular Botox injections. But perhaps there was also some diffusion of the injected Botox into the area of growth of the scalp hairs, and that might have 
actually indirectly inhibited the secretion of TGF-beta-1 from the dermal papilla cells in the hair bulb. So I thought that that was a very interesting idea that they had, and they basically suggest that this could be a possible treatment option for androgenetic alopecia. Now, 30 units of Botox every four weeks isn't cheap, so this is something that, you know, you'd have to have a very motivated patient population for. Um, but I do think it could be an interesting option to offer to patients and maybe helps us understand a little bit more of the pathomechanism by which the follicular miniaturization that is the hallmark of androgenetic al alopecia occurs. So I thought this was pretty cool and I'm excited to see if I can find somebody to try it on. Well, massaging your scalp for five minutes a day is definitely cheaper than 30 units of Botox every four weeks. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> so if the average unit of Botox costs, I don't know, $10, Mm -hmm. and you're doing this treatment over 24 weeks, then the, the cost is $1,800, mm -hmm. which is, you know, a fair amount, though it's not astronomical compared to maybe things like platelet-rich plasma that we also do for hair loss. Though I will say the photograph that they show, which presumably represents the best response they got, is rather unimpressive. The, the photograph shows improved hair growth, but it isn't super striking. They somewhat addressed this by saying that the patient selection did seem to... Um, be a little bit weighted towards older patients with more advanced alopecia. And I think you find this with any medicine or treatment protocol that you're using to treat androgenetic alopecia. Early treatment is always better because there is a point of no return, in my opinion, and I think in a lot of people's minds for the hair follicles um, that have undergone miniaturization. And at some point, when you get to that stage when the patients have that sort of shiny bald scalp, we don't even appreciate the follicular orifices. I think that you might not have as much luck retrieving hair growth at that point. But if you treat early, I think it can be very beneficial. It's just, of course, a little bit more difficult to measure in that setting. But the ability to use trichograms and do hair counts improves the analysis of those kinds of trials. So if Botox mysteriously inhibits TGF-beta secretion, mm -hmm. then can it be useful for keloids? was a question I asked myself while you were talking. Mm -hmm. And well, I admit that I briefly stepped away from your discussion to look it up. And ah! Indeed, there is an article um, from just this year, 2020, mm -hmm. uh, in, the, in the journal Scars, Burns, and Healing mm -hmm. by authors Katrin Sorabi and Ioannis Gutos, where they do a review of this. And indeed, Botox can be helpful for keloid scarring. So just like you say, dices and slices and treats all kinds of things. I know. I, I absolutely love Botox. I actually include it in my wardrobe budget because I would much rather have Botox for, you know, three months than have um, a very fancy pair of uncomfortable shoes that look beautiful in my closet, but I never wear. So, you know, I think of it sort of as that part of the, the budgetary thing. But, you know, it's, a, it's not always a... Um, cost available treatment for everyone. But I think that the other important part of this research is it helps us to, I think, understand a little bit better some of the mechanism that we might also be able to target in alternative pathways. But I thought it was a great article. I was very interested in it. I look forward to hopefully further research in this area, and I enjoyed reading it. Well, I hope you also enjoyed reading our next article, which is out of the JID and is called Dietary Antioxidant Capacity and Skin Photoaging, a 15-year longitudinal study. The authors include Maria Hughes and Adelaide Green, or possibly Adele Green, sorry, uh, mostly out of Australia, but also from the L'Oreal research arm and from the UK. So this was a longitudinal study, 15 years. So way back in 1992 or thereabouts, 
They recruited 777 adults who are all under 55 years of age at the time. And they've been following them. I was about to say ever since, but I guess they followed them into the year 2007. And in this particular paper, they look at the effect of does the skin look like it's been photo aged and how much did somebody's antioxidants in their diet help with that? Okay. So the prevalence of what they call severe photo aging increased over this 15 years from 42% to 88%. So as you might guess, the people who started the study in 1992 were 15 years older by the end of the study in 2007. So one assumes that the normal aging process is responsible for a lot of that accumulated severe photo aging. They do note that adults who are over age 45, who ate a lot of antioxidants, had 10% less photo aging. And this was dose responsive. So people who ate the most antioxidants had even more than 10% less photo aging. And people who ate not quite so much antioxidants had less than 10%, but still abrogated their photo aging compared to the average, I guess. I like it. So that's the upshot. If you're age over 45 and you eat a bunch of antioxidants, that is associated with this 10% less photo aging. So there's a few more details that I would like to discuss. So one interesting tidbit. So ultraviolet radiation comes in different types. We normally think of A, B, and C. I don't know if this is, yeah, bell-worthy. I totally Michelle. forgot to do that in the first article, too. So really quickly, TGF-beta-1 is produced from hair follicle cells by dihydrotestosterone, and it can increase the miniaturization of hair follicles. Sorry about that. Ding, ding. Okay, yes. UVA, ding, ding. UVB, and UVC. It sounds like you're banging a coffee mug. Okay, so no lie, I kind of am because I left my bell at home and I'm recording in my office today. So mother of, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. And so, yes, it's basically basically a coffee mug. So UVA is what accounts for most of the aging of the ultraviolet. And UVB tends to be the one we think of as burning, which is very convenient that A is the aging one and B is the burning one. I know, right? And photo aging from UVA is thought to account for 80% of the aging appearance of the face, 80%. Mm -hmm. So if you lived in a cave from birth to when you died at age 90, your skin would look 80% less aged, I guess, than it does in normal walking around world. So interesting to know that it's that significant. If you're interested in what kinds of foods contain antioxidants, well, in this study, most of the people's dietary antioxidants, 48% of them, came from fruits, vegetables, juices, and nuts. Good source. Of their dietary antioxidants, 32% came from tea, primarily black tea, they say. So I guess that this is when the Australians show their British roots and <laughs> drink some tea. They didn't mention if crumpets had a lot of antioxidants, but I can only assume that they don't. The glycation from the sugar would undo any antioxidant benefit from a crumpet anyway. Oh, weak. Sorry. So just stick with the tea and uh, avoid the crumpets. No biscuits. But grain products accounted for a little bit and also alcoholic drinks. So I should be good to go. <laughs> and they said 4% from other foods. Just remember not to Tito's and tan. Yeah, don't Tito's and tan. Um, some time ago, we had an article where it turns out that drinking alcohol is synergistic with the effects of ultraviolet radiation in terms of its badness on the skin. So if you're going to drink, like do it indoors. <laughs> also, I suspect most of these antioxidants from alcohol were like red wine. Yeah. So those, those are the ones we think about for antioxidants. Probably resveratrol. 
So, as people who have listened to this podcast for a few episodes know, I'm pretty hard to convince with some of these dietary studies, in part just because they're so hard to do. I mean, you can't take 777 adults and for 15 years decide exactly what they eat and then look to see what happened afterward. So this is all association type stuff. So people who ate more antioxidants had a little bit less photoaging. Is that because they ate less or because they ate more antioxidants? I don't know. I suspect not. I will tell you that. My <laughs> suspicion is that it's not because of that. It's that because these people who eat healthy diets with antioxidants have other health-related behaviors that are responsible for it. However, they do cite some basic science that is supportive of the idea that there could be a causative role. So they cite a number of studies that say that antioxidants in skin can protect damage by scavenging UV-induced reactive oxygen species. They also cite some studies where they called them human feeding studies. So I guess they actually had people and decided what they ate for at least a little bit. And that showed increased plasma antioxidant potential after ingestion of plant-derived foods, as well as tea and red wine. <laughs> and they also cite some studies where supplementation with plant-derived antioxidants, like taken as a capsule, can increase the skin's sunburn threshold. So I think some of this is the polypodium leucotomus thing. I love polypodium leucotomus. Yeah, the best, I think the best known brand name is Heliocare. Mm -hmm. And I know you're a big proponent of that. I love some polypodium leucotomus. It's a fantastic thing to use to help decrease the damage your skin takes from the sun. And I've actually um, published a little article about a patient that had PCT that was unable to be controlled any other way, but when he would routinely supplement with polypodium leucotomos, he didn't develop blisters. And I've had other patients with photosensitive dermatoses that have similarly benefited. So it's, I think it's a great supplement. And you are one of the smartest people I know. So if you <laughs> say it's great, it's probably great. So there's a little bit of basic science that suggests that maybe there's a, at least some causation here, and it's not just correlation. The dose responsiveness is also sort of suggestive, but also you'd think that people who ate more antioxidants probably just had more otherwise healthy behaviors. In terms of aging in general, here is some depressing news. So the <laughs> endogenous formation of a type of protein called advanced glycation end products apparently rapidly increases with age after your mid-30s. And I just turned 40, so this is concerning. And they can act as photosensitizers that heighten UV-induced damage. That's a bummer. And also, as you get older, there's changes in your immune reactivity such that you're more likely to have kind of chronic low-dose inflammation that's just going on all the time, a phenomenon they call inflammaging. <laughs> and they say that that contributes to the pathogenesis of most age-related diseases. So I hadn't heard that. I think maybe if I had thought about this particular issue, I kind of would have guessed that. But in some ways, that's like encouraging for the future because if a lot of age-related diseases are due at least in part to this like smoldering chronic inflammation that gives us a single target that could potentially treat a lot of human disease. Mm -hmm. Sidebar. So remember in this study, it was only adults age over 45 who got the benefit from eating antioxidants or who had the association with eating antioxidants, reducing their photoaging. So maybe you need some oxidative damage to accumulate from aging before the antioxidants have something that they can help with. Maybe. 
The authors point out a few limitations to the study. Uh, so they say it is possible that the protective effect of antioxidants are explained partly by food components other than antioxidants, like monounsaturated fats, for example, okay. or they're related to ding, 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 other health-related behaviors associated with diet quality. So that's what I think. Um, but this was a big study. It's probably the biggest we're ever going to get on this. And the reason I still thought it was helpful was because people are really interested in this stuff. And you'll have patients ask you if there's anything that they can change with their diet to help their skin. And there's data. Um, it's not super hard, but it's probably the best we're going to get that says, yeah, if you eat a healthy diet with antioxidants and drink a ton of red wine, probably that's good for your skin. The red wine thing was a joke, of course, drink in moderation. <laughs> what do you think, Michelle? I don't think we should advocate for alcoholism, but I do think a balanced diet does tend towards better health. And, you know, people who are concerned with those things often pay attention to other health behaviors and avoid things like smoking and hopefully ex excessive alcohol intake. Uh, so I think that sometimes healthy behaviors have sort of a pleiotropic effect on things like aging and, and quality of life. Um, so I think that what it seems to me, what I, what I would take away from this paper is that, you know, there's a lot of reasons to eat a balanced, healthy diet that has, you know, good sources of nutrition from the, the plant and animal kingdom. If you are a omnivore and if you are a vegetarian person, you know, thoughtfully designing a diet around plant-based foods. Um, I think that, the like grocery store supplements probably have less value um, because they don't come along with those other healthy kind of sidekicks. So basically it's, it's, it's kind of, it's not so sensationalistic to say eat some fruits and vegetables and try to balance your diet, but that's basically what I kind of take away from this. And maybe some polypodium leucotomus. I mean, that one, I believe in, I, I'm a devotee of that plant. There's just three other little bits that I thought were kind of interesting in this study. So they evaluated photo aging by taking really close-up pictures, microtopographic grading of the skin surface of the back of the hand. So the pictures they have almost look like they're electron microscopes, though of course they're not. This is not nearly that much of a magnification, but it does like show you peaks and valleys in the skin, and that's how they graded the photo damage. It's kind of interesting, though not surprising, to read about the sorts of people who are most likely to have severe photoaging at baseline, so back in 92. They were more likely to be male, older, born in Australia or New Zealand, not to have education beyond high school, to have fair skin that always burned, so didn't tan, have outdoor occupations, and to have one or more actinic keratosis. Okay. That makes sense. Not really shocking that that's the population that had the most photo aging at baseline. And then it was a little bit interesting to read the sorts of people whose diets were the highest in antioxidants. So think about a typical person that you might think has a diet high in antioxidants. And now see if it's this sort of person. Female, older, not smoker, regular use of sunscreen, and regular consumers of dietary supplements. And have comorbidities. Interesting. But who doesn't have comorbidities? But maybe they were adjusting their diet and doing other healthy behaviors because of those comorbidities. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. <laughs> I love that. I think that's awesome. So I think our next article sort of builds on the theme of what can complementary and alternative medicine do for you? Um, so we're going to look now at an article also from the JAD on the effects of immunostimulatory herbal supplements on autoimmune skin diseases. The authors are Srita Chaka and Victoria P. Worth out of UPenn in Philadelphia. 
And this article kind of wants to discuss what might be an unintended side effect of the consumption of certain otherwise considered healthy supplements. So the ones they looked at in detail are spirulina, aphanizomenin floss aqua, which is a kind of algae, chlorella, also a type of algae, um, echinacea and alfalfa. And those different kinds of supplements have been shown to stimulate the immune system. Uh, the use of these herbs may potentially be associated with the precipitation or worsening or flaring of autoimmune skin diseases. And patients with um, autoimmune skin disease should potentially be advised about supplement use, um, which I actually do at baseline. So when I have a patient that has lupus or rheumatoid arthritis or dermatomyositis, part of my discussion with them at our first meeting and at follow-up meetings as a, a reminder is that the kinds of things that people take to you know, get over a cold, like echinacea and golden seal, may be helpful for the general population, but for a person whose immune system is beating them up, so it's already internally directed, turning up the volume on that can cause more damage. And so I advise people who have those conditions or people who have a strong family history to actually avoid those supplements. And I shall have to add more supplements to avoid to my little spiel. Um, so they kind of go on to talk about the fact that supplements promising immune health have gained popularity among dermatology patients, but there's little to no evidence that these supplements improve dermatologic conditions. And some in vitro and in vivo studies have shown that these different supplements, spirulina, um, afazinin, this is such a hard thing to say, afanizomidin, mosaqua, so and chlorella, and echinacea, and alfalfa can activate immune cells via certain cytokines and chemokines. And that there are case reports. Afanizomidin. Yeah. It, sounds, it kind of sounds like either a demon or a spell, like the name of a demon or a spell from Harry Potter. Afanizomidin. No, yes, right? The algae will appear. I shall summon it and I will be coated in green sticky algae. Um, so they have had some case reports, actually, of disease flare or clinical onset um, of different conditions, including lupus and dermatomyositis, um, correlated with the ingestion of these immunostimulatory herbs. And so they kind of wanted to look at how this potentially could come to fruition. So they point out, again, that complementary and alternative medicine has increased in the United States, and the estimates of use in in someone's lifetime of CAM, complementary and alternative medicines, um, has increased uh, ranging from 35 to 69%. So a lot of people are using these, dabbling in them, experimenting with them. What will you? Uh, a lot of these are herbal and dietary supplements. And so herbal supplement sales increased almost 10% from 2017 to 2018. So there's the greatest increase in sales growth in the past two decades of these kinds of products. A lot of so, these... Go ahead. As an aside... We doctors are educated that the immune system is like this delicate dance of homeostasis. When it's working right, you don't feel it unless you're sick, when it then helps you not get sick. But there's these autoimmune diseases, and now especially with the coronavirus, mm -hmm. we've learned that a lot of the damage from coronavirus seems to be caused by your immune system kind of overreacting to what's going on and causing inflammation. So... If you take these supplements, which have been shown, at least in vitro, to stimulate immune cells while you're sick, I think there's some logic there. But I think there's people who just take them all the time, always. And that, I think, is a little scary because your immune system is like at this delicate homeostasis and trying to push it in one direction or the other is risky. I agree. Um, you know, it is a system that should self-balance and does in most people. And when we exert force on it um, with different supplements, different medications, we can sometimes 
significantly upset that balance and, and caused some problems. So there's a lot of technical information in this article. Um, they present it very nicely in their tables. They've got three tables in this article um, that kind of discuss really the mechanism of immune stimulation. So I'll go over those first and then just kind of clean up details with the main body of the text. So spirulina is one of the first herbs they describe the use of and one of the most commonly used versions of spirulina that they reviewed was a kind of cutely named um, supplement. It was called Immulina, which I thought was kind of adorable. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's, that's actually very cute. Um, you need to say it again. Okay, so... It's called Immulina, so it's Spirulina, and it's for immune function. So Immulina, Immulina. Okay. so isn't that cute? So Spirulina, um, the mechanism of action of this is that it increases natural killer cell activity, activates toll-like receptors, and increases NK-mediated interferon secretion via elevated IL-2 and IL-18. So this is a lot of pimpable content, but this is all um, elements of the innate immune system. But it also can affect the um, adaptive immune system through uh, MCH stimulation and increases gene expression of cytokines, um, including IL-8, IL-1 beta, and COX-2. and can act on Th1 cells and increase the production of Th1 cytokines such as IL-2 and interferon gamma. So that's spirulina. Um, with the brand name Immulina that was being studied specifically. And I thought that was kind of a, a very interesting thing. This is um, used typically as what's called sort of a superfood in the health food industry because it has a high protein content and has some supposed health benefits. And this is one of the things that sometimes people who are vegan will utilize to supplement vitamins as well as protein. It I has... once created, I didn't create them. I made my own like protein bars with some recipe that I found online that had me go out and buy like little tiny spirulina. They almost look like dried peas, little mm -hmm. spirulina balls. Yeah. They're disgusting. I have also. I mean, it's like scraping pond scum off of a pond and drying it out. It, it does taste of lawn clippings. It's not the most tasty thing in the universe, but um, people use it because it theoretically can have some benefit by acting as a hypolipidemic, antioxidant, anti-inflammatory. And it can be taken in tablet form, added to health foods as a powder, um, put into smoothies or green juices. Um, and some studies have shown that it suppresses tumor genesis and viral infections, possibly due to its ability to stimulate immune synthesis. But it does that relatively broadly. Um, they actually have also done some animal studies where they fed chicks spirulina and so little chickies, and they found a dose-dependent increase in macrophage uh, concentration as well as phagocytic activity. And they also found express, um, increased nitrous oxide uh, synthesis as well as um, sort of a response like you would expect if you had exposed the organism to lipopolysaccharides from a bacteria. So there's actually some suggestion that spirulina may have similar biologic functions to lipopolysaccharides. So I thought that, that was kind of very interesting. So that's spirulina. Um, and it has been also sometimes marketed um, for patients who are immune suppressed somewhat broadly. There have been some studies um, looking at patients who have HIV uh, and supplementing spirulina in those patients actually increased their CD4 count and decreased their viral load. So I think there is potentially some applicability to this. They found that immunolina, that um, spirulina supplement, also increased CD4 T cell and B cell um, stimulation with candida albicans in vitro and increased T or B cell proliferation for up to 14 days after intake. So it um, is potentially relatively powerful supplement when you're talking about immune modulating, but it can, of course, 
have a dark side, like anything in our immune system. So we talk about, you know, aging is one side of the coin and the dark side of that is anti-aging, but you get too far on the other side and you end up with cancer. When we're talking about the immune system, you, it's great to have a healthy functioning immune system, but too much immune stimulation can lead to autoimmune disease. And so they talk about potentially the precipitation of autoimmune skin diseases and, and finding things that might cause that. And so some of the diseases that have had um, case reports of either stimulation or flare with spirulina have included pemphigus vulgaris, dermatomyositis, mixed immune blistering disorders um, with features of bolus pemphigoid and pemphigus foliacea. Foliaceous, that was actually confirmed with histopathology. And uh, I think that all of those are things we generally want to avoid. So spirulina is pretty darn powerful. It seems to be one of the most powerful ones in this sort of little cocktail. And that's another problem with a lot of these supplements is that very frequently they're present with multiple different components that may all have independent activities on the immune system. The next one they looked yeah. at is our little that demon one. That makes it one. challenging. That's one totally. reason I don't like often recommend probiotics to people with atopic dermatitis, even though there's like a little bit of data behind it. There's like so many different combinations that I, it's just too tough to sort out. Yeah. Cause one of the ones they talked about was, um, Isalian. It was a weight loss shake that has alfalfa and aspergillus, rhizopus, trichoderma, saccharomyces, and bacillus. So it's just got a lot in there. So some of these have a little bit of a kitchen sink approach to their ingredients list. So the next specific ingredient they looked at was our little demon one, the Afinizeminin plus aqua, which is a kind of algae. And it also activates NK cells and activates NF kappa beta and increases TNF alpha and IL-1 beta expression. So these are all, you know, as we know, pro-inflammatory cytokines that when they're present in high levels can have antiviral effects. We talked previously about the ability of interferon to stimulate antiviral immunity and potentially its effect on the body fighting off infections such as the novel coronavirus. But um, when we have too much activation of that and it's self-directed, it can cause some problems. So I think that that was a very interesting thing. They cited here a case report of a 45-year-old white female who developed cutaneous dermatomyositis one day after ingesting a supplement containing this microalga, the Afinizomenon plus aqua. Oh no, I've said it three times. Boof. And it Poof. comes up. We've <laughs> lost Michelle. Yes, and it gives you dermatomyositis. Um, and in this patient, they actually confirmed this association by rechallenge. So the patient developed dermatomyositis cutaneously. She stopped the medication, got better. She rechallenged and redeveloped it. Now, notably, this patient did have a TNF alpha polymorphism, which may have genetically predisposed her to, to dermatomyositis, but a lot of our patients who have autoimmune diseases have a genetic predisposition. They also looked at chlorella, and chlorella increased TNF-alpha and IL-1-beta expression, augmented Th1 cell response, and increased NK cell activity and production of interferon gamma and IL-12. So I feel like if you wanted to punk somebody who had psoriasis, you would spike their food with chlorella because a lot of those cytokines are participatory in the inflammatory cascade that causes psoriasis. Did you have something? All right, you I'll have to, to remember say? that when April Fool's Day is coming around. <laughs> right, find your friend with psoriasis and give them a nice green shake with tons of chlorella in it. If you want to prank them, don't do that to people. It's me. Um, <laughs> uh, the chlorella is used typically to lower cholesterol levels and the prevention of atherosclerotic plaques. Also, theoretically, can have anti-tumor and antimicrobial activity. And I think it's important for us to know not only what these things can do, but what people take them for. So, because chlorella can be used to lo lower cholesterol levels, and because 
we know that psoriasis is a systemic inflammatory disease that can cause increased risk of cardiovascular mortality. When we talk to our patients about this, they might go look for alternative ways to reduce their risk and may stumble onto chlorella as potentially something to help manage lipids and accidentally flare their psoriasis. So I do think that discussing these particular supplements with patients with any disease along the autoimmune axis is a good idea. I had a patient in residency actually who had gone on a health kick and had started consuming a lot of nightshade vegetables, um, as well as started taking a whole bunch of different kinds of immune stimulating um, herbs and spices and all of those things. And just a few weeks into her new regimen, she developed pemphigus. And I remember her asking the attending at the time, do you think that I could have triggered this? And, you know, my knee jerk reaction as an uninformed novice in the field of dermatology was, of course, she didn't do anything. Autoimmune diseases aren't anybody's fault. They just happen. And I never think that it's the patient's fault. But sometimes an unfortunate series of events does occur that can exacerbate or trigger an autoimmune disease. And in this patient, it seemed relatively connected. So I do think that talking to our patients that have an autoimmune bent is a good idea. Our good old friend, Echinacea, we know a lot about this. It is used every year for people who are trying to prevent symptoms from the cold. And has talking about Echinacea? Echinacea. Just cut out for a moment. Oh, yes. Okay. Sorry. I was talking about Echinacea. Yes. The nice purple corn flower. It's actually a very pretty plant. Um, it increases extracellular cytotoxic cytotoxic effects of macrophages, similar to levels um, compared with interferon gamma. So if you gave somebody interferon gamma, their extracellular cytotoxic effects of macrophages increase, and you see a similar change with echinacea. It also increases the production of interleukins 1, 10, and TNF-alpha, and stimulates NK cell activity and increases antibody-dependent cell toxicity, cytotoxicity. So this is one of the reasons people take it when they're dealing with a cold. Um, and it has been shown in some clinical trials to shorten the duration and severity of upper respiratory infections. But because it does potentially have some ability to activate some relatively powerful mediators of inflammation, you need to be thoughtful about this. And they had a case report that suggested that echinacea induced a pemphigus vulgaris flare in a Caucasian patient who had previously had a quiescent disease course. Um, he'd taken the echinacea supplement for the first time after an upper respiratory infection, and he notably had had previous upper respiratory infections that had not triggered his pemphigus vulgaris, but he didn't take echinacea for those. So this somewhat suggests that the echinacea supplements may have played a role in triggering the flare. They also had a patient with the flu that de developed erythema nodosum after ingesting echinacea. And after discontinuing the echinacea, the erythema nodosum improved despite the persistence of flu-like symptoms. So I thought that was very interesting. And then the last component of this article that they looked at was alfalfa. Um, alfalfa sprouts are, you know, sort of one of those health foods that are relatively ubiquitous. People put them in shakes and, you know, consume them on sandwiches and things like that. And people are even them. characters in old TV shows, right? Alfalfa, like Saturday Night Live <laughs> or, or sorry, that's the, the rascals, little rascals. I think I'm not sure. Yeah, I, think that's I was right. thinking about something else. Anyway. Um, so people will take alfalfa for a lot of reasons. It has a high concentration of vitamin C, vitamin K, copper, folate, and magnesium. It also interestingly contains phytoestrogens that have been shown in some in vitro studies to be able to increase the growth of estrogen-dependent breast cancer cells. So some intriguing things associated with alfalfa sprouts. Um, however, when they're taken in more medicinal qualities, they can potentially have some problems. Um, they've actually got some patients that did a pilot study of human patient volunteers where one patient actually injected, sorry, ingested up to 160 grams of ground seeds daily and developed lupus-like laboratory abnormalities, including pancytopenia, hemolytic anemia, and the presence of antinuclear antibodies and hypocomplementemia. The patient notably was asymptomatic except for splenomegaly. 
They've also found that monkeys valid alfalfa sprouts developed a lupus-like syndrome, including an erythematous macular rash. And in another study for previously healthy patients who were consuming 12 to 24 alfalfa tablets per day for up to seven months, developed symptomatic lupus-like diseases manifesting as rash, joint pain, muscle pain, and positive ANA, which actually resolved after discontinuation of the alfalfa tablets. So... This is kind of potentially a relatively significant connection between supplementation of alfalfa and problems with autoimmunity. One of the fascinating things alfalfa does, and this is really kind of cool, is it has an amino acid called L-canavine. And it's an amino acid that human beings don't use in their tissues. But when people take it by mouth, it can actually replace L-arginine during protein synthesis. So you end up forming a bunch of aberrant misfolded proteins that are then ubiquinated and degraded, and that can lead to peptides that can be presented to MHC molecules on CD4 and CD8 positive cells. So these novel epitopes, because they have this L-canavine in the place of L-arginine, can create aberrant proteins that may cause cells to undergo apoptosis and may trigger a cascade of events that may involve antibody production against cellular antigens or cytotoxicity. So this is such a severe connection that the Lupus Foundation of America has recommended avoiding the consumption or supplementation of alfalfa for patients with systemic lupus erythematosus. So I I thought that was how it works. It's scary. Yeah, I was like, this is almost science fiction-y, but it's very interesting. So um, notably, most of the time, I think this is consumption of medicinal qualities of this thing that can also be used as a food. And we see this with other things. There are certain kinds of phytochemicals present in plants that when you eat them in a normal basis, it's a nutrient and it acts in sort of a relatively subtle and manageable way. But when you super supplement it in a concentrated form, you can have relatively significant side effects. So as just a summation, I think there's presented here sufficient evidence to suggest that we should be counseling our patients with autoimmunity to avoid some of these immune stimulating supplements and foods. And I'm definitely going to add a discussion of these to my spiel when I talk to patients about echinacea and avoiding that because you don't want to provoke an already rowdy immune system. Yeah. I feel like people with lupus shouldn't even watch the little rascals. (laughs) Too much alfalfa in there. Michelle, are you ready for today's emerging contact allergens moment? Yes. So this this is our current Dermosphere mini-series. We are hitting this article called Contact Allergy, Emerging Allergens and Public Health Impact, published in the International of Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health by authors Wolfgang Uter and Ian White. It's just so dense and so good that we decided we couldn't do it all in this one episode, so we've split it up. So today we're going to talk about preservatives and also plastics and rubbers. Fun. So preservatives, there's not a whole lot to say here, but something that surprised me was that wall paints. So look at your wall. There's probably paint on it. Mm-hmm. It's 90% likely con- t- to contain methyl isothiazolinone, um, MI, or a similar product. That was the and as we know, that's a pretty year. significant sensitizer. Yeah, it was contact allergy of the year, like recently. So it can sensitize wow. people. And if you're already sensitized because you've been exposed to methyl isothiazolinone in a cosmetic or a baby wipe or something, then if your walls have MI in them, then that can cause some funny allergic contact dermatitis, including some airborne allergic contact dermatitis if the walls are freshly painted. Wow. 
And the other thing they point out about preservatives is something called they call the paraben paradox. So parabens are fairly common preservatives, and the paraben paradox occurs because some people have what looks like an allergic contact dermatitis to a product they have that contains parabens, and then they have a positive patch test of parabens, so you're like, bam, nailed it, but they still don't react when they're exposed to parabens and other products. Weird. Isn't that weird? Isn't that paraben paradox. Yeah, didn't know about that one. Um, but that's all I wanted to say about preservatives. In terms of plastics and rubbers, so acrylates and methacrylates are two common um, substances that are used in glues, sealers, and cements. And the exposures often occur in the fields of dentistry and from artificial nails. So that's probably bellworthy. I feel like I remember learning about this methacrylate thing in artificial nails when I was studying for the boards. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and they note that nitrile gloves are not that great potentially at protecting against them because there's at least one methacrylate product that uh, was found to penetrate nitrile gloves in less than 30 minutes. So especially if you have a patient who like works in a nail salon or something and has an allergy to this stuff, sometimes it can be hard to figure out what to do because even wearing gloves isn't all that helpful. Wow. And most people don't feel like changing careers. There's a substance called solvent orange 60. Mm. Sounds like something you'd uncover while reading some old computer files on Stranger Things. I thought it sounded like Soylent Green, like something out of that. (laughs) Yeah. So So this is a bright orange color. (laughs) No spoilers, Michelle. Okay. This bright orange color, and it's the bright orange color that makes traffic lights yellow and makes like those orange lights on traffic, like uh, construction barriers, it sounds like. So orange and yellow traffic lights cause have this solvent orange 60 in them and it can cause allergic contact dermatitis. So if you have somebody whose job is like making those, then I guess look out for it. They point out that solvent orange 60 is also sometimes used in the frames of spectacles. Hmm. So apparently there is a case report about that. Accelerators are substances that are in rubbers and plastics. And my understanding is that they're part of the manufacturing process and they just accelerate the time it takes to make the product. They're sensitizers, especially in fields where people wear lots of gloves, like healthcare, especially yeah. these days. Yeah. They point out that, quote, accelerator-free gloves are becoming more available. Mm. So if you have a patient and you're worried that they might be allergic to one of these substances, you can go buy them accelerator-free gloves. I poked around online very briefly and found that a box of 100 such gloves is about $17, so not too bad. A box of nitrile gloves is $10, so the accelerator-free gloves are more expensive, but it's still not like an expensive product. And finally, one of these products is Thyram, Mm -hmm. and they report a case, or they cite a case report of a patient who had allergic contact dermatitis to the Thyram in his rubber cell phone case. Oh, yeah, that makes sense that that would be a potential source of contact allergy. Did they mention the specific accelerators they were talking about, or should we name some of them? Let's name some of them. Let's All name right. drop some accelerators. One, one of my favorite because it has the same initials as me. So um, I'm Michelle Babtarbox, MBT. And one of them is Mercaptobenzothiazine. So like, that's my favorite one. What's your favorite? Uh, 
Oh, I couldn't pick one. They're all so great. We've got thiorams. We've got carbamates. Some of the main ones, maybe some thiazoles. A lot of these chemicals um, can be found in both natural rubber latex as well as the replacement types of gloves for those things. So you may have to look for a replacement. And it's nice that they do make accelerator-free gloves. It's nice that that's an option for patients. They also mentioned one called diphenylguanidine mm-hmm. I and like the benzothiols. Thiazoles, benzothiazoles. Yeah, the benzothiazoles are in the same family as mercaptobenzothiazole. They sort of, they live under the heading of the wonderful initials of MBT. <laughs> there were also shoes back in the day. There were some shoes that were some of those rocker bottom shoes that you were supposed to like burn more calories with or tone your glutes with or whatever. And they were Oh yeah, that was MBT. a fad. Yeah, those were called MBT. So I always kind of remembered that it was connected to like rubber and things like that because of the soles of those shoes. Aha. Aha, connections. That would have been great to know 15 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's talk about some liver ultrasounds. All right, so I always like reading articles that tell us that we don't have to do many, many more things to teeny tiny babies because I like little babies and I don't like making them uncomfortable or unhappy. So I was excited to read this article. So this is a lovely article by Drs. C. Mahon and B.A. Kinsler out of London in the UK, the Great Ormond St. Street or Saint, I don't know, Hospital for Children, which I thought was very nice. Um, And it is entitled, Routine Liver Ultrasound Screening Does Not Alter Clinical Management in a Cohort Study of Multiple Cutaneous Infantile Hemangioma. So they wanted to look at why we have some of the recommendations we have and if we should kind of shake or, you know, redefine some of those. I like articles that are sort of iconoclasts that go after dogma and sort of question why we do what we do and make sure that we're doing it for a reason that makes sense. So I thought this was a great article. Um, So this is basically a letter to the editor that discusses the fact that cutaneous infantile hemangioma occurs in about 5 to 10% of neonates with multiple infantile hemangiomas occurring in 30% of those neonates that already have an infantile hemangioma. Expert opinion currently recommends routine liver ultrasound if the patient has five or more infantile hemangiomas, and if the hepatic hemangiomas are identified, it's recommended to test thyroid function even if the neonatal thyroid screening occurred. So Luke, you have... So this is like a common pimp question that I give to my residents. If they have a patient they're presenting and they like have an infantile hemangioma, I often say, well, how many infantile hemangiomas on the skin until you start wondering if you need to look elsewhere? But spoilers, this article is going to take that pimp question away from me. It's going to rock your world. So you're right that they may have found that that pimp question does not actually have support in the data. So you have two lovely children, Luke. Do you recall right after they were born, they get a little prick in their little heels so that they could check a test? Do you remember that? Sure. The uh, newborn screening. Yes. So that is also sometimes called a Guthrie test. And so this comes into play later in the discussion of how we manage these children. So that's where we talk about the thyroid retesting in that expert opinion, if they find the hepatic hemangiomas, even if that neonatal thyroid screen, which is part of the Guthrie test, was normal, or the heel prick test. Supportive data from one cohort demonstrates associations between five or more infantile hemangiomas and hepatic hemangiomas, and between hepatic hemangiomas and adverse clinical outcomes, including cardiac failure and hypothyroidism. 
but there are no data relating the number of cutaneous infantile hemangiomas to ultrasonic screening or thyroid testing to frequency of adverse clinical outcomes as per the principles of any screening program. So they're saying that, you know, while we do this based off of expert opinion, we haven't really done the homework to prove that it's necessary. Uh, They said that one study suggesting validation of screening ultrasound in infants with multiple cutaneous infantile hemangiomas, while it was important in describing the ahepatic hemangioma cohort, in fact, actually compared the outcomes in the infants who presented spontaneously, meaning that they had something wrong with them and their parents brought them in, so you'd expect a more severe disease to those who were diagnosed in screening. So that was sort of a biased um, comparison there. The control population was a little bit off from what you would expect to have the results present in. And it also lacked, you know, real control groups without ultrasound or without hepatic hemangiomas. So they wanted to ask three fundamental questions. One, is there a statistically significant association between number of cutaneous infantile hemangiomas and adverse clinical outcomes? Two, does screening ultrasound alter rates of adverse clinical outcomes? And three, does thyroid function retesting of those with hepatic hemangiomas alter clinical outcomes? So that's what they wanted to look at. They make note that the best way to test these and really the only ways to really answer the questions two and three would be a randomized prospective controlled trial. But they have at their fingertips right now a retrospective cohort study, which is what they used here. And they used that through electronic patient records. And they sort of had to caveat that as screening advice changed over 20 years, they were able to include infants with and without liver ultrasounds and also repeat thyroid testing to assess the questions of whether or not screening alters rates of adverse clinical outcomes and whether thyroid retesting with um, hepatic hemangiomas alters outcomes. So they they excluded um, infants with Bates syndrome, which makes sense, and no patient had multifocal lymphangiomatosis with thrombocytopenia. So that's like a mimicker of infantile hemangiomas. Yes, definitely something to be kind of cognizant of that. That's something to keep in your differential when you're looking at babies that present with congenital or neonatal growths of the vascular type. So the age of presentation to the department of the babies only had infantile hemangiomas was this is so cute how they did this 0.5 years. So they were like half a year old. I thought that was so cute Um, with a 0.47 years for the subset with multiple infantile hemangiomas. So younger if they had more and 0.21 years for those with cardiac failure. So sicker babies presented earlier, which kind of makes sense. And the age of first ultrasound in the hospital was a median of 0.39 years. They studied 843 infants, 74% of which were female, which is in keeping with the general predilection for female infants to present with infantile hemangiomas. More than male male patients will present with infantile hemangiomas. And 83 of the patients had multiple infantile hemangiomas. Happily, there were no deaths. And 90- Sorry, 83% of them had multiple infantile hemangiomas, yes. they say. 83% had multiple infantile hemangiomas. 74% were female. Yeah. Yes. Um, there were no deaths, which is uh, very nice. I like to see that in a study about babies. And 19% of those that had been screened by ultrasound had hepatic hemangiomas, 10 of which were single, 58 of which were multiple, two of which were diffuse, and one was multiple slash almost diffuse. And more than a third of the patients had less than five infantile hemangiomas. So more than a third of the patients that had hepatic hemangiomas, and I think this is maybe kind of bell-worthy. So I will kind of ding the bell there. So, um, ding the coffee mug. Ding the coffee mug. I'm doing the best I can. I'm improvising. Um, so more than a third of the patients who had hepatic hemangiomas documented by ultrasound had less than five infantile hemangiomas and would have actually been missed by the current screening recommendations. 
Yikes. So despite the higher rate of hepatic hemangiomas, um, which is, you know, 19%, that's kind of a fair percentage, um, less than 1%, so only 8 out of those 843 babies required treatment for cardiac failure, and less than 1%, only 6 out of those 843 babies um, actually had hypothyroidism with only one patient requiring treatment for both, which is in line with previous reports. And they said, so they had six out of the 13 babies that had anything interesting going on um, required treatment. So six of the 13 babies that had either the hepatic hemangiomas um, that had kind of helped to lead to cardiac failure or hypothyroidism. So only six out of those babies, um, or, or sorry, six out of those babies had less than five infantile hemangiomas. So again, showing that there are babies that would have the worst outcomes that we worry about that we wouldn't pick up with the routine screening recommendations anyway. So, wow. Um, so that's kind of crazy. And eight out of the 13 um, babies had the hepatic hemangiomas that didn't have the requisite five infantile hemangiomas. Overall, so they- the five infantile hemangioma thing, like, I guess it was expert opinion, but it, according to the study, it was just kind of made up. And so based on the data, there's just no good cutoff. So you should pay attention to symptoms instead, I guess. Symptoms, definitely. And then they stratify out uh, basically between um, 10 or more. So they said that there were no cases of a single infantile hemangioma with cardiac failure. So if they've only got one, you're fine. Um, there was a significant difference in cardiac failure rate between those those babies that had one to nine infantile hemangiomas versus those with 10 or more. So the new magic number might be one, you're golden, no problem. Anything between one and nine, pay attention, and 10 or more, probably go look. They weren't able to stratify out between one and four to five to nine. So like those different places where we would have basically done the screening now, um, that didn't actually measure out. So the total number of cases with adverse clinical outcomes was, as they point out, low. And so this may be underpowered to detect the sort of more nuanced findings. All eight of the babies that were treated for cardiac failure had cardiorespiratory symptoms or signs at first presentation to medical services with their infantile hemangiomas, and treatment was given on the basis of those symptoms and signs rather than on an ultrasound report. So some of them had other findings like a portal cable shunt. Um, they had also some of those patients that had the hepatic hemangiomas. And in five out of eight of the patients, um, treatment was deemed or demonstrated to be due to a cardiovascular cause requiring surgical correction rather than the hepatic hemangioma itself, which might reflect the confounding influence of prematurity on both structural cardiac defects and multiple infantile hemangiomas. So it might be more, the connection is that these babies have a little bit more of a tendency to be premature when they have multiple hemangiomas and that when you have a premature baby, they're more likely to have structural cardiac defects. And so you might have, that connection may exist because the unifying feature is actually the prematurity and not the hemangiomas. They said that three out of six of the cases treated for hypothyroidism were detected by neonatal screening. Um, so two out of those patients had a uh, normal Guthrie test, which is that heel prick. Kind of nice. Um, so, so why do infantile hemangiomas cause hypothyroidism is another... That's a good question, question. I like to ask That's my a residents. Good question, and I don't think that one's going away because it's consumption. So, right? Say that again. Mm. It's consumption. The answer is, ding ding. Oh, yeah. Some infantile hemangiomas elaborate this hormone called type three iodothyronine diiodinase, mm -hmm. and that just chews up thyroid hormone. So I like asking it because it makes me look smart because I can tell them something they don't know, and I can use big words to do it. 
I think that's a great pimping question. Repeat it one more time for those of us that are studying for boards. So, so infantile hemangiomas can sometimes elaborate a hormone called type 3 iodothyronine diiodinase that inactivates thyroid hormone. Very awesome. I like it. So there, the authors here are just saying that half of the babies that had hypothyroidism, that hypothyroidism was detected with the heel prick test, the little Guthrie test. Um, the incidence of congenital hypothyroidism in the U.S., uh, sorry, in the U.K., was basically the same as their study population. So they found that retesting of thyroid function in those with multiple hepatic hemangiomas would have therefore only missed one case that was definitively missed by the Guthrie screen. So a relatively small yield for those kind of routine tests. And anytime you have to take blood from a baby, it's kind of a situation. So on the basis of these data, they suggest that all infants should have thorough clinical assessment on presentation with any number of infantile hemangiomas. So any number at all. And if there are concerns for cardiac failure, hypothyroidism, which could present with like lethargy or sleepiness or poor feeding, then the patient should be referred that day to a specialist. If there's no concerns, parents should be made aware of the early warning symptoms and signs and have rapid access to a physician. So they actually say here that in their practice, they're going to change what they do based off of the findings of this study. So they're going to now have use of ultrasound screening only based upon signs and symptoms of cardiac failure, independent of cutaneous infantile hemangioma number, and that their data do not support re routine rescreening for hypothyroidism for those who have hepatic hemangiomas. However, as they point out, the number of cases are low and they would like a large prospective randomized controlled trial of infants with all numbers of cutaneous infantile hemangiomas to assess the validity of ultrasound screening or repeat thyroid testing compared to clinical assessment. But I thought this was a very interesting article, uh, relatively reassuring as well, because we all worry about those babies that present with those multiple infantile hemangiomas. You get that call from the NICU and they're like, can you come check this baby out? And they have lots of hemangiomas and the mom's freaking out. So it's always nice to have data you can give to a mom that's reassuring. Right. And then you're like, well, probably ultrasound their liver, maybe check their thyroid. Sometimes they even say eh, it doesn't hurt to ultrasound the scalp while you're at it. Just look at the brain. Um, but I'm not sure why I said that back in the day. And now I'm not going to even say, you know, check out the liver. And I would say that their findings in this study are similar to what I encountered in practice. The handful of babies that I've had that we've done liver screening on and have discovered hepatic um hemangiomas we've then sent to GI and they've always said are already on propranolol don't worry about it so it's reassuring don't need to check their liver ultrasounds anymore don't need to cause undue stress to parents that there could be something else wrong inside but pay attention to the signs and symptoms such as lethargy and poor feeding to clue you into cardiac failure or hypothyroidism I agree. And of course, any other clinical signs of any kind of underlying dysraphism, when you have like a double hit, when you have like a hair collar sign and a hemangioma or a hair tuft or collar or anything else that would make you suspicious that more was going on. And again, these excluded babies that had face syndrome, those babies definitely need significant attention and a lot of screening. Yes. Well, thanks for joining us today, guys. That's all we got. So today we learned that Botox can perhaps be helpful for androgenetic alopecia because it inhibits TGF-beta, which might be involved in androgenetic alopecia. Super cool. We learned that people who eat more antioxidants in their diet, if they're age 45 or over, have 10% less photoaging. But is it causative? Question mark. <laughs> also, is it we worth it? <laughs> we learned that... If you take supplements to increase your immune system, they might work and they might work in a bad way and make your autoimmune disease worse or create an autoimmune disease where before you didn't manifest one. 
we learned a little bit about preservatives and rubbers and plastics and that Michelle's favorite rubber accelerator is MBT. Hands up if you've got a favorite rubber accelerator. I know I do. (laughs) And we learned that you don't have to ultrasound the liver for babies who have five or more cutaneous infantile hemangiomas. Thanks to our institutions. Thanks to the University of Utah for supporting this podcast. And thanks to Texas Tech Dermatology for lending us Michelle. Thanks to Ryan Carlisle, med student and also our social media expert who keeps up on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram accounts. You can check us out there at Dermosphere Podcast. You can also find us on the web at dermospherepodcast.com, where we post all well, we post links to all the original articles so you can find them from there. And it also has all of our archive and a few other goodies as well. It's also a good way to get in touch with us. We will see you guys in two weeks. Woo-hoo!